You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 274, Jerry Dugan and Becoming a New Man. Get out of that rut! button is on friends welcome back to halfway there this is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary christians about today's christian experience i can't believe i've been saying that for over five and a half years but yeah here we are it's exciting and today on the show we have a guest he is uh one of the one of the few people i know who's been podcasting longer than me at this point although there's definitely some people out there but uh He's the producer and host of the podcast Beyond the Rut, uh, where he seeks to um, help you know, per- pursue and achieve your dreams without compromising your family, uh, your faith, or your health. Um, he, and he's had some amazing guests. I'm sure he'll tell us all about that. Our guest is Jerry Dugan. Jerry, welcome to Halfway There. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. And I don't know about you, but every time I hear the, the title of your show, Halfway There, Bon Jovi kicks in in the back of my head. And I'm just curious, like, what would it take to get him to give you the rights to use that as your theme song? Uh, Right. It's possible. You can buy a license, but it is pricey. And I have not, (laughs) (laughs) I have not paid for that just yet, but yeah, it's out there. So friends, uh, go to halfwaythereadpodcast.com, hit that Patreon button if you want to hear halfway there. Uh, or here living on prayer as uh, as halfway there's theme song maybe maybe one day got it at least for one episode he's got to at least release it for <laughs> one episode right like, yes Eric for you Christmas I could probably do it and get away with it anyway all right well Jerry thanks thanks a lot <laughs> I'm glad that you're here you you and I we're we're buddies I would say I hope you'd say that but yeah we're conference buddies for sure been to a couple of podcast movements together and uh, you're you're one of our CPA members which is awesome so. Um, but you know, I just said a little bit about your podcast. You obviously do a whole bunch more than that. So give me kind of the, the brief rundown of like who you are and where God has you right now. All right. Uh, so I am a Christ follower have been since 2005, I think. We'll Maybe get into that. Give me, give me take, just where you are right yeah. now. Uh, married two kids, kids are grown up. Uh, my wife and I, a week from the time we're recording, we're going to be celebrating our 20th anniversary. Wow. So November, 2021 will be. 20 years since we hitched up and she hasn't fired me yet. So obviously I'm learning some stuff as we go and she's given me a lot of forgiveness. So, uh, very blessed to know Olivia, uh, AKA my better half, AKA my common sense. So (laughs) it's like, uh, no matter how many, you know, things I learn, how many books I read, uh, she's the keeper of the common sense. And so, uh, great person to be grounded off of. Um, now, When I'm not podcasting, I have a day job. I'm a director of a learning and development team. So we specialize in leadership development, team building, and what's that phrase you hear a lot of times? Uh, Other duties as assigned. Mm -hmm. That that hits my department, myself, quite a bit. And we enjoy it. It's a small team. Uh, We work for a healthcare organization in the Dallas area. And uh, we're making a difference in our own little way. So that's me in a nutshell, I think. I I love that. That's great. So... Um, let's dive into your story. And of course I mentioned your podcast. I'm sure we'll get to kind of where, where that comes in, uh, to the story, but, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll let that kind of come up as we go and we'll finish up with that maybe. Um, so tell me, I know you're in Texas now. Are you originally from Texas? No, uh, I was an army brat growing up. So, uh, born in Oklahoma, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and that name will come up another time i think okay uh, we'll see how this conversation goes but uh yeah married to an army soldier military policeman and he married a woman he met in thailand when he was stationed over there uh, turns out his boss uh, had a wife who was a meddling type and said you need to meet somebody uh, also known as my sister so here you go they met and my dad fell in love and they got married so then a couple years later i come along and in in a great populated area of Oklahoma and, yeah, right. uh, and just kind of grew up everywhere. Uh, California, Germany, Japan, back to California, back to Germany. Um, and I, I really don't regret it at all, even though I probably had a new set of friends every six months and a new home every two to three years. 
uh, it, it really opened up my worldview of multiple cultures out there, multiple ways of looking at things. And just it's a bigger world than the town I was living in. So mm, yeah, that was that was childhood up to a certain point. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and that's kind of interesting, right? Because that will shape you, right? Oh, it giving yeah. you kind of a a much more open mind. Did you find that? Uh, definitely, yes. Uh, so you know, a lot. It, it was just weird. It's like the world that I knew was you know appreciating Japanese culture. And then coming back to the States and, uh, you know, seeing like some of my extended family make fun of Asians, you know, thinking that we all have slanted eyes. And uh, so I'm half Asian. My mom's from Thailand. And oh, I'm man. like, what's this whole slanted eye thing? Because I'm looking in the mirror and these aren't slanted, but you're <laughs> telling me my eyes are slanted. And I'm looking at the mirror like it was very jarring for a seven year old meeting like racism for the first time from oh, his own goodness. family and not knowing what racism was. Uh, and so like looking back it's like i had the bigger world view didn't make me a better person than them but like i i could see asians as people not as caricatures and i think being a child who was an army brat growing up around the world i think that was definitely one of the benefits was at a younger age being able to see people as people and recognizing that holding on to that and being able to resist a lot of the social norms that kick into place that give you the the prejudices that you build up over time so uh, i would definitely say uh, you know, in, in raising my own kids, I, I've said it a couple of times to my wife that sometimes I feel like we robbed our kids of an experience of seeing the world by me getting out of the army after one tour. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and same for her. She was in the army. That's how we met was in the army. And uh, we both did one tour and got out. And I, I just keep thinking, man, if I had done 20 years, uh, well, I would have retired three years ago. My kids would have lived in multiple duty stations. I'd have a paycheck, still have a job. It, it, it just would have been nice. Uh, but yeah, we lived in one town for our kids. You know, as far as our kids are concerned, they've only known one town and only known one city culture, basically, and that's Corpus Christi. And, you know, it's got its trade offs. We've given them stability, we gave them a loving home. Um, and they're still branching out, doing their own thing. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah. yeah. So interesting to encounter like racism in your family and then to go, okay, I guess we've got, you know, ha having a more, um, you know, just a, that larger kind of worldview to know that uh, I was saying this earlier in an episode that, um, you know, people are all the same, right? They all, <laughs> largely wherever you go, they all love their families. They all want to provide for their families. They're all worried about eating and having shelter and, mm -hmm. and care. Right. That's really it. Um, okay. So, were, was your family a Christian family, though? Uh, not really. Like, my grandparents attended a Methodist church every weekend. They sang in the choir. Uh, I think they took my dad to church as often as they could. And, it, of course, my dad leaves the roost, stops going to church. You know, he's a soldier. Soldiers don't go to church. You know, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, my mom, though, grew up Buddhist, so uh, that was her upbringing until I was probably about three or four years old, and then she started to... Uh, at least to ward off the evil spirits is the story that she told me uh, she needed to have a cross in the house. And there's a, like a spooky story that she told me with it. And, uh, but yeah, so she started to look into Christianity, but her embracing of it was really from a supernatural ward off spirits kind of thing. Not so much, you know, who's this Jesus Christ guy. Uh, if I ever went to church, it was because a friend of mine said, let's go. Or my grandparents said, Hey, we're going, you know, that when we did visit them, uh, but as far as like a household, we didn't grow up reading yeah. the Bible. We didn't do prayer together. Uh, so we really just at the mercy of like whose house we were visiting. If they prayed, then we prayed. Um, if we were at my grandparents, we went to church on Sunday. Um, but that was about it. Yeah. So how did you find Christ? Oh, man. Uh, a long, windy road with lots of me being bullheaded, I think. Okay. Well, uh, give me give me a few points on the road and then tell me that story. All right. So uh, as, as a kid, though, growing up, uh, I get little exposures here and there. So I remember when we were stationed in Japan, I was about seven years old till I was about 10 years old. And one of my friends said, hey, we're doing this thing for Easter. Come on down to the chapel. Small army post. And I remember getting dressed up. And going like we rode our bikes over there. We played games. We did Bible study and and so on. And then we played afterwards. And, you know, we just kind of it was a different time, you know, because there were probably parents like, oh, 
you guys roamed around this like foreign country army post all by yourselves? Yes, yeah, we did. <laughs> and we even went outside the gate, hung out, and then went back inside the gate. Uh, and so I, I even went as far as like taking a Bible from the church because, I mean, they were on the back of the chairs and they were free. So I took one. Uh, turns out they probably weren't free now that I look back. <laughs> <laughs> so I think about eight, nine years old, I, I, I may have stolen a Bible. Yeah. But, but look, here's the thing. Any church that's going to get mad about that is not worth its salt, right? So that's yes, okay. exactly. And, and so they're probably looking at, hey, it's text funded anyway. You know, we'll just get another one. Uh, and so I had like little exposures like that. And of course, I, I think I mentioned earlier, my grandparents would take us like at Easter and Christmas time when we were in California visiting them. Um, and... Yeah, you can't, and that was kind of it, just little sprinkles here and there. Uh, but then when I was 11 years old, a big pivot point happened in our family, and that was uh, my parents were now getting split up. Uh, my mom had met somebody while my dad was in Germany trying to get uh, a place for us to stay and, and restation over there to Germany. And we were now leaving my mom behind as my brother and I go to Germany. Uh, the, the short story of it is my dad did not handle the split up very well i mean his world basically for as much as he was concerned things were fine you know i've got a roof over my family's head i'm providing my kids are healthy my wife is healthy um they have everything they need based on the income that we have and so when my mom told my dad i'm leaving you go on your way with the kids uh it, it blew up his world and it it took a huge sledgehammer to his sense of self-worth and, and so yeah. he became suicidal and um and so in that about a three to four month window of my brother and i 11 years old my brother nine years old uh doing our best to keep my dad alive you know I mean, we're not trained in suicide prevention or intervention and uh, what we did know is that if we reported my dad to his boss or to the you know anybody for help uh, the first thing that would happen is he goes to a hospital. The second thing that would happen is that my brother and I are shipped back to my mom, whom we felt did not want us because she already left us for somebody else. Uh, who's to say that guy doesn't like influence her to kick the kids out because he, he kind of already did in, in a sense. So we, we knew the other guy was not on board with. He was he was totally cool with splitting up the family. He was not cool with starting or taking over our family. Uh, so that was the kind of guy that uh, that boyfriend was to my mom. Uh, but we didn't want to be a part of that. And so we, we tried to keep that secret as best as possible. Uh, eventually, my dad uh, tried to hang himself with a lanyard. I didn't realize he got past us because, I mean, my brother and I locked everything down. We hit every knife, every fork. Uh, wow. If it had a sharp edge to it, it was buried under somewhere in Germany. There's a housing apartment complex. And in the basement in somebody's random storage room is a bucket of like knives and forks and blades and razors and oh my goodness. Uh, pokey sticks and chopsticks that can be sharpened files. I mean, anything that could hurt my dad, we got out of there. We were using plastic utensils for a while. Um, you know, my dad was uh, prescribed antidepressant medication. So there was somebody somewhere who knew my dad was struggling and prescribing my dad meds. We were doling out his medication to him. Uh, we had like entire system of, all right, you're going to work, Dad? Great. Call us as soon as you get to the office. And if you don't call us, we'll call you. And if you don't answer, we're skipping school and we're coming to your office. Wow. So we had a guaranteed phone call when he got to the other end. And then he had to call us to let us know he was coming back. And then we would time it. We're like, all right, we know because we took the bus. And we've also timed it when we rode from work to home with you. Uh, it takes you this much time to get home, even with traffic. If we don't see you at a certain time, we're going to go ahead and call the military police. And, and he was a military policeman, so he did not want this to get out. Uh, so we had all these kind of checks and balances in place. Uh, it turns out he got a lanyard by us. He tried to hang himself. I was the one who found him. Um, and yeah, for all intents and purposes, I didn't save him. You know, he, he was too heavy. I was 11. I was tiny. Yeah. And uh, the, the rope just snapped. So, I mean, by the, by the grace of God, I mean, looking back, um, and, and the timing of it too, because not, not a Christian, not going to church. Uh, I just remember screaming, God, please no. And then the rope snaps, boom. And he falls down. I think he died. Uh, so I run outside, grab my brother. We come back. My dad kind of starts breathing again and it leaves, it left a mark though on his neck from one side to the other, just high enough 
that uh, he couldn't hide it. And, uh, you know, after that whole incident, my dad promised that was that was it. He's done. He realizes he almost left us. It was selfish of him, uh, but he does need um, he needs to heal. And we said we understood. We love you. You got to trust us. Uh, well, he has to go to work the next day. And in the army, you got to wear this thing called a uniform. Yeah. And uh, there are standards to how you wear that. Like you can't just like show up in your BDU uniform and put a scarf on uh, <laughs> that, that sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, and so he's he's doing his best to like pop his collar. He's in the late 80s, but he knows he's a staff sergeant. He cannot pop his his collar. He can't do anything to hide this red mark from side to side on his neck. And so his boss walks by and sees it and says, hey, Sergeant Dugan, what's what's up with your neck? And he's like, nothing. And he, like, he's trying to scrunch his chin down to his chest and hide it. And he's like, don't try. I can see it. It's like from ear to ear. Are you really hurting yourself? And, and they realized my dad was really acting out on the, on the pain he was going through. Um, so I'm telling you this long story because you asked me one question. Yeah, How yeah. did I come to Christ? And I said, here's one touch point. Uh, so my dad winds up uh, going to mental health, inpatient mental health in Germany, uh, well, what happens to my brother and I? And we told my dad's boss, we never said anything because we don't want to go to my mom. We can't go to my mom. This is why. He goes, I'm aware of that situation. We're not going to send you to your mom. We're going to put you in foster care. Oh, my. Yeah. And we're like, what's that? And so now we're scared. We're like, what if they, they leave? Like all the horror stories of like stepmoms and being adopted and all that. Like we had no idea what foster care was. Uh, and the, the family we wound up with was the complete opposite of all the fears we had. Uh, it was a family of five, very Christian. They prayed before every meal. They, they showed grace in everything. Like if they had a disagreement, they forgave each other and they talked through it. That was not my brother's world. Mine. Like we fought everything out. You know, we're brothers. Like we fight it out until your parents split you up and hopefully dad splits us up. Not mom. Cause she's the mean one who will spank us. And, uh, like this was a whole new world. Like they were just like telling us like, because we're family, we got to be close together. And, uh, they treated us like family knowing that we were going to go back to my dad and always reassuring us. We'll go back to our dad and things will be fine. And, uh, there was a, there was even a time where we really missed my dad. They said road trip. Um, the foster dad took some time off of work. We all piled into their minivan and we drove like two or three hours to visit my dad in the hospital and they were cool. And my dad was cool. And it was like, there was a consistency and a genuineness in that family. And we were only with them for like three weeks, I think. Um, but I knew deep down that is an element I want in my family someday. And you know, we flew back to the States. That's it. I, I didn't become a Christian. <laughs> so all that to tell you, that wasn't it. That wasn't the moment. Um, okay. Okay. But let me just yeah. recap right here. So you, so, I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm really curious. What did that do? That was a lot of responsibility for an 11 year old, right? Like, oh yeah. How did that shape you? Obviously get, eventually you got kind of a healthy family dynamic and example, mm-hmm. but how did I, that's gotta be so hard to live through trying as you said, try to keep your dad alive. Like what'd that do to you? Oh man. Um, that's kind of a weird way to put it. That's kind of no, yeah, aggressive, it, it, but you know what I mean? <laughs> it's weird. Like looking back, you know, they always say that God prepares you for something. Um, and even that trauma was probably preparing me for something that was coming up later on. But my mom always, I guess as the firstborn child was always instilling in me, you've got to take care of your brother. You got to take care of your dad. I'm not always going to be here for you. I didn't realize this was all a prelude to something that was going to come years down the road. Um, so I already had it instilled to me that it was like my duty to help my family, to, to serve my family, serve my parents. And, and so this was like probably the most nightmarish way to go about it. But it was in, in a way it felt like this is what needs to happen. Wow. And it wasn't until our story started to get out to other folks. I realized, oh, this is not normal. Like, you know, like you're talking about a happy family and like in middle school, I think it's where it really showed itself that um, I had friends who wanted to go on family vacations to their grandparents' house. Um, I go to my grandparents' house and I get bullied by my cousins, you know, a couple of big ones in particular, uh, or if not them, one of my uncles. And so I did not want to go to my grandparents' house. 
didn't matter how many donuts they served after the church service. I was going to get my butt kicked every weekend. We went up to my grandparents' house. So coming out of the frying pan right into another one, uh, that's kind of where we wound up after my dad got out of the hospital, went back to stateside. We went back to California. Um, it was almost like coming out of one hell and right into another one. So every weekend getting bullied by an uncle, a couple of my cousins. Wow. Um, just nonstop fighting, getting called, you know, uh, revisiting that racism. So being called mm-hmm. gook, boat person, half breed, uh, wow. like being part of the family, but not really part of the family. Like there was that half of me that was the outsider and they let me know. And uh, so there was, there was a lot of getting picked on. I mean, I tried to fight back. They, they probably remember me fighting back more than them overpowering <laughs> me, uh, you know, beating me up and all that stuff. Oh, man. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's tough, dude. I didn't know all this stuff. So, all right. Well, so how did you end up finding Christ? How did you end up, how did that end up happening? All right. Well, so all that's up to the age of 14. Fast forward to the age of 27. <laughs> so there's a big gap in there where I'm trying to do it on my own. I am uh, probably the best way to describe me was agnostic. Like there's something out there, but I don't think it's that Christian faith. I don't think it's that Buddhism faith. I think y'all got it wrong. There's something out there that's way bigger than us. And I always try to say it in a way that made myself sound smarter than everybody, um, which was very arrogant looking back. Um, but yeah, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So I'm in my last few months of serving serving my first tour in the Army. I'm a sergeant. I'm a medic. I'm with the 1st Battalion, 10th Field Artillery. And I am placed in Kuwait where we're threatening to invade Iraq. And this is like February, March of... Yeah, 2003 probably. 2003, yeah. And I remember my boss telling me, hey, Sergeant Dugan, um, unless you're going to re-enlist and stay here... Uh, if nothing happens in the next two weeks, we're going to go ahead and ship you home so you can exit the army. It's a great, yeah, I'm going to get out. <laughs> uh, Cause I would get in trouble for smiling and laughing too much and <laughs> not like, being like a hard nosed guy all the time. You're like, this is not for me. Yeah. <laughs> like I was good at it. Uh, I could lose myself in it. Uh, but one of the things I picked up that I didn't have when I went in was a family. So I'm now married. I have one son. Um, I've got a baby girl on the way and you know, just army life was not my style. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, the army life's not my style, just straight from the cadence. And so, yeah, the two weeks go by, pack up my bags, put them on a truck. Next day they say, Hey, formation, everybody get out to that gravel area. So there's 700 of us. We're walking out there. I look down on the way to the formation area and there's my bag that I just packed to go back to the United States, but it's not on the boat. It's right there. And that's when we found out we got stop lost. And I was like, oh, crud, because we don't do a stop loss unless we're going to war. And I was like, and OK, I got to tell my wife. Um, and so yeah, I, I called her. I had 30 seconds to tell her we got stop lost. So she knew what that meant. And just she stopped talking. We had a moment of silence and then it was my time to hang up the phone. Um, so we invade Iraq. But before we do that, so on the night that we're invading Iraq, March 19, 2003, we're all putting our chemical suits on. It's before nightfall. Scud missiles are flying overhead, hitting the camp where we used to be because we got out of there. We're like, <laughs> suckers. Uh, <laughs> right? You think we're over there, but no, we're over here. Um, now, there are people in those tents, so we hope they're okay, but we're gone. Uh, but I remember as I'm putting on my chemical suit, I take a moment to stop. Again, I'm not a Christian. I'm proudly calling myself agnostic. Uh, I'm calling myself things like a free thinker and I read more than one book, all the things that your typical atheist will say, I'm that guy. But I'm also thinking about, you know what? We're expecting 30% casualties. Once we hit Baghdad, I'm in the field in the army that has the most posthumously awarded medals of honor out of any branch in the army. (laughs) I'm dead. Yeah. Right. (laughs) The most medals awarded to people who died. Yes. You're after that. Division. Yeah. After yeah. Okay. yeah. So we don't get the most medals. We get the most medals after we're dead. Oh, my goodness. We get, yeah. That baseball stat. Uh, the most posthumous, posthumously awarded medals of any branch in the Army goes to the medical corps. And then I'm thinking about all the training scenarios where I push the red button. I trip a trip wire. I walk right into ambushes. I'm that guy. And it's not like I'm being aloof. It's like I'm needed over there and I go running. And then it's like, uh, Doc, what are you doing? 
god gun you're dead <laughs> and yeah. so I, like like i'm always the guy getting killed in training uh either to make a point or because i, I ran in being heroic and i just remember thinking i'm not gonna make it this oh this goodness. is it yeah i was supposed to go home i'm the short timer so like in the movies the short timer dies and i was like and, and i'm on top of that the medic so statistically in real life i'm a dead man and uh i'm with the battery that's going to be the spearhead of this whole battalion yeah um i'm going to write one of those letters you know in case i die letters and and so i wrote mine but i wrote it cryptically so to this day Liv doesn't know which one it is and i mean i wrote it so well i don't even know which one it is what does uh, that mean must, uh so like in the movies they kind of like they show like soldiers swapping letters uh so like they you know, usually before like a battle or something right uh and the idea being that if i die my buddy is not dead he's gonna mail this letter home for me and it's my farewell letter to my family and so i didn't want to freak out my buddy so i wrote my letter because we had a chance to write one more letter before we crossed the border so i wrote my letter folded it and rather than holding on to it i handed it off to the guy running the mail for one more time so i sent my farewell letter to my wife oh wow okay and so you didn't you knew, but she didn't know that that one was, yeah, could have been last. Yeah. And, and it was very subtle. It was just anything and everything I would want to say to my family that I would regret not saying was said. So it's a very yeah. subtle thing. Like we, we kept all the letters and it's a very subtle thing. Like it's just, I'm loving on my wife. I'm being much more, I'm adding even more tender little, you know, bits inside the letter i'm speaking to jacob and, and saying things about my son jacob uh, and my daughter wasn't born yet and i'm saying things to her and um and that's probably the one little you know if if Liv hears this and she goes back and looks it up she'll she'll realize then which letter it is because i'm actually speaking to emma who's not even born yet uh, in fact i don't think we were even calling her emma yet so wow, dude. Okay, spilling yeah. the family secrets here. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. So go <laughs> go to the. So you you're invading. You're like, maybe um, may, you know, this is this looks bad. Yeah. Don't know what's gonna happen. And then how? So how does this lead to your your faith? Yeah. Is this a battlefield uh, confession of faith? Almost. Uh, oh, <laughs> so I'm going to set you up and disappoint you again. I've never uh, had a story but, from the Iraq war. Like I've had lots of other really? things, but never from the Iraq war. Oh, man. Uh, so after I write that letter and I hand it off to the first sergeant to take it to get mailed off, I actually said a prayer. And uh, it, I still remember it to this day. It was something along the lines of, hey, God, if you're real, you'll replace me with a man who's going to love my wife the way she needs to be loved so she feels cherished. And that same man is going to love my children and raise my children as if they're his own children. And that's all I'm telling you. I didn't even say amen. It was wow. like, <laughs> I, t I told him, if you're real, <laughs> this yeah. is what you're going to do. That's it. See you on the other side. And it was like, you're not going to heaven for something like that. And, and I continue to put my chemical suit on and I look around and I see that people are kind of scared. We're about to invade a country. And so I just do my medic thing and I'm putting the med ease and you know, being funny. And, and then we invade, we get to Baghdad. Um, and while we're in Baghdad, we're holding down a compound that it had multiple functions to it. Part of it was the training ground for the Republican guard. So we saw a lot of their equipment and supplies and so on that hadn't been looted yet. But it was also a missile manufacturing site. And I only bring that up because people, civilians, would try to get in and loot the place all the time. And we just couldn't encourage them or discourage them from coming inside. No matter what we did, signage, yelling at them, chasing them out all day, every day. And we just started doing things to hopefully strip them of their sense of dignity and worth. And so we're like, what can we do to an Iraqi man to make him feel ashamed and never want to come back in here again? And so we're like, well, they value being dressed. They value having shoes. Take those away and set them on fire and send them on the way naked. Oh, my goodness. So we started doing that. And uh, right up to the day my daughter was born. Um, and I remember 
So our platoon was doing this. It was like a very quiet three-man team going out there, chasing these looters out all day, every day, while the rest of the platoon was doing what they needed to do to stay on mission. And so I was kind of the spare guy. Like, unless somebody got shot or stabbed or blown up, Doc didn't have a lot to do except to help Sergeant uh, Parks do his thing. And that was what we were doing, the two of us, and we just grabbed some random third guy to be our security and after a while, we're like, no, that third guy's always a liability. He's like the red shirt, but worse, like from Star Trek, you know? Like, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> like the red shirt wasn't going to get killed off on our missions. Our red shirt was going to get us killed because we're like walking down and all of a sudden we turn around and the third guy's missing. We're like, what the, where did he go? And we call the guy's name out and he comes walking out of a building just like, do, 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 do. We're like, what are you doing? We did not secure that building. Why did you go in there? Like 15 looters come running out and we're like. You just went into an unsecured building by yourself and didn't even tell us. We're like, oh, that's it. From now on, it's just Sergeant Parks and I. Um, so one day, though, um, Sergeant Parks had to go while I was securing some looters, and I'm stripping their clothes down, setting it on fire. Um, and <laughs> one guy, uh, he's with his family. So it's father, son, wife, daughter, which, by the way, is the makeup of my family today. And so I still think about this family all the time. Uh, but I've stripped down the son, stripped down the father, piled up all their clothes, all their money, and I set it on fire while the wife and the daughter were screaming. And the father's pleading with me, please, you know, in English, like, this please. This is why the Iraqis don't like us, Jerry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was the nicer stuff that oh, we did over there. Man. Uh, and I remember this kid, though, from our sister platoon. They had just moved in like that day. So they had no idea what we're going through. So our platoon is getting like shot at every day. We have looters we're chasing out of our compound. We can't secure the space that we've got. It's just too big for 30 to 40 guys to secure. And here comes our sister platoon. And up to this point, their life has been nice. They've been securing a uh, an electrical transformer area. They're playing soccer with the locals. They're eating the local food. They've made friends. They've like seen family photos and everything. The complete opposite of us getting a drive-by shooting every night and having people like right outside our windows and stuff. And so like we were on two different levels as far as um, how we responded and reacted to the Iraqis. Yeah. Uh, and I remember this private first class walks up to me and I'm a sergeant. So I already outranked this guy by like two levels, maybe three ranks. And he just says, hey, sergeant, what's what's up with their clothes? And I look at this guy like, what the heck? Like. I thought he was here to help me and he's here challenging me in front of these people, like as if they know what's going on. And, and the, and I'm like, what do you mean? What's up with their clothes? I'm encouraging these guys to never come back and they already regret it. And he goes, but why their clothes? Just very calmly, but why their clothes? And I look back at him and now I want to get mad at him. One, because he's challenging me, but two, he's out of uniform. He has a gold chain that's hanging outside of his his uniform, outside his body armor. Not on purpose, it just is. And it's a gold chain with a cross on it. But I'm mad at him because he's out of uniform and he's challenging me. And I remember saying something to him that I was ashamed of then and I, I know I'm forgiven for saying it, but uh, you know, it wasn't my best. And I just said, look, you can help me secure these guys or you can join them. Which one do you want? Wow. And he just went to parade rest. He said, Sergeant, you have a nice day. And he walked away. He dismissed himself. So that was the other thing. Like in military protocol, like he didn't wait for me to dismiss him. He dismissed himself. Like he, he went to parade rest and then he like snapped to attention and he turned around and he walked away. And, but the look in his eyes was one of disappointment. And at first I thought that disappointment was in me. Like, wow, this is a guy I looked up to and he let me down. Uh, but looking back, I because now I've had that same thing go through my head, not to confront something that he was confronting. But, you know, like when you ever step out in faith and you're expecting a certain outcome and that outcome did not happen in the moment. And you're just like, well, God, I did it. I did what you asked mm -hmm. in your hands now and walk away. That's that's the moment he had. Look, looking back, that's the moment he had. Like he went against everything he was told and conditioned to do to challenge me because it was on his heart. It was, it was a conviction he had and it didn't go the way he expected. And so he just surrendered it. 
And, and he walked away. And what he did not see is that I turned back to that family and it was just like, I just felt the blood rush out of my head. And I, I was like, what am I doing? Like, you know, I broke somebody's ribs earlier today. I've stripped a man down in front of his wife, a son down in front of his mother. They are scared and I'm doing this to them. And I've got a baby girl being born. Like I can't, you know, I'm, I know I'm not going to make it, but my daughter cannot know that she had a monster for a dad. And I let that family go. Um, I couldn't give them their clothes back or their money cause it was already, it was charred, but, uh, yeah, they got up, they, they walked through the hole that they came in, in the, in the, uh, the wall. I sealed the wall up myself and, uh, I went back to my, my hooch where my bunk was. And I just, I, I told everybody, Hey, I, I can't guard anymore. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta work on something. And I went to my hooch and I just broke down and I cried. I was mm. like, man, I, I cannot be a monster. I cannot be a monster. There's no way. And that was the last time I did anything like that to anybody while I was over. I mean, well, since, because, uh, but <laughs> as far as <laughs> just for the record, uh, it wasn't like I just picked this back up when I came back to the States. No, that was the last time in a war theater, uh, that I, that I treated people like that, especially civilians. And it was the last time ever. And it, it yeah. was just like, you know, for the last moments I've got left, I'm going to be a good man so that people can honestly tell my daughter I was a good man. And, um, so still didn't receive Christ by the way. <laughs> yeah. So you, so you felt conviction. All right. So you're, so you're, yes. you've so come face that. to face with who you are. Yes. Right? And, uh, so a bunch of other things happen. I wind up going home. So this was around July now of 2003. Uh, my daughter's now about three, maybe four months old. And, um, I, I'm coming home. I get to meet her for the first time at the homecoming ceremony. Uh, we jump in our cars. My mom had come up or come down from North Carolina to Fort Benning. My brother had come over from California to help my wife move back into our, our home that was assigned to us. Um, Jacob was about two years old. Uh, Emma was crying like crazy because that's what she did when she was a baby. Very well. Like she had a reputation, apparently, of being a crying baby. Uh, <laughs> like she was legendary, apparently. Yeah. Um, and so on the drive to the house, though, from the gym where our homecoming ceremony was, to the house um everybody decides Liv and i are going to be in the car by ourselves uh my mom my stepdad my brother they'll take the kids in a separate car as we're driving home uh Liv's telling me hey i got something i need to tell you and uh you, you may not be you may not be on board with it but i need to share this with you because it's done and I'm thinking of the briefing that we got from our chaplain before we came back home. And that was, look, all that money you made that was tax-free and you're expecting to have like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in the bank. <laughs> if you're married, there's no money. Just It, it either went to new furniture or a Sancho. And if you don't know what a Sancho is, that's a, a, a boyfriend. And yeah. like somebody on the side. And I'm like, this guy knows the word Sancho. That's so cool. I'm impressed. Because uh, it's, a, I guess, a Mexican word or a, a Spanish word. Uh, slang. And so when she said she has something to tell me and, and she mentioned that, you know, and I had mentioned that I was expecting us to leverage the money that we saved during my deployment. I was like, oh, shoot, let it be furniture. Let it, let it be furniture. And I was like, hey, did we get new furniture? And she said, yes, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. Oh, so what is it? And she says, while you were gone, I was very worried for you. Very worried. And I know you're not very religious, um, but I prayed for you. I prayed for you every day. And the very first prayer on the night of the invasion, I, and, she, and oh man, I'm going to get choked up here. Um, she said, I prayed, God, if you bring him home in one piece, I will make sure my whole family goes to church. I can't guarantee he's going to receive your son as a savior. But if you bring him home in one piece, I promise you I'll bring my family to church. And, and the rest is up to you. And, I was like, oh, that's a neat deal. And she said, well, here's the thing. I'm looking at you, and it looks like you brought you back in one piece. So I'm asking, can you help me fulfill a deal I made with God? And I'm like, well, I mean, if you made a deal, a deal's a deal, and we got to honor that. Because uh, by this point, I did latch on at least to my family crest motto, which is by virtue and valor, by virtue and valor. So that's the virtue thing. My wife, who is a part of me and I'm a part of her, made a promise. We got to fulfill the promise. And so my thought is, we'll go to church. 
you know, and every time our kids get called out, I'll be the guy that steps out and takes the kids. That's cool. Uh, so I had a plan to not really be a Christian, <laughs> but I'll go because it'll make my wife feel good. Uh, she made a deal. It, it, it's for her as well. And I would say a year later, uh, we're at a new church, new town. Cause we, we got, I got out of the army. We moved to Corpus Christi and we're attending church there 2005. And we've been going there for about a year, maybe less. And our pastor says during prayer, Hey, you know, God just wants me to say right now, you've been dipping your toe in the water for a good while now. And he wants me to let you know, it's time to just jump all in. You know what you're getting into. It's time to put a ring on that finger start that relationship with Jesus Christ right now. And I'm, and this is a big church. We're like a mega church, like three, maybe 4,000 people. And I'm like, how does he know? <laughs> like, wow. I've never met this man. Who is this guy? And But it was already on my heart, though. Like, go for it. And this is 2005. And, and so it, it was just there. I, I felt like he was speaking directly to me. You know, God was speaking through him. And I was like, eh, what the heck? You know, let's do it. I'm in. And from there, it was just like doors opening. Um, I wouldn't say like angels and like, you know, the, the more spiritual stuff. I just like felt this lightness in my own heart. Like I had made the right decision. That's, that's all that moment was for me in that moment. Man, everything after that, um, you know, just whether it was hardship or a success, it, it didn't matter. Like, being in tune with God and be able to like look all the way back, like even to the moment where like my dad is hanging from that rope and I'm screaming, yeah. please God, no. And that rope snaps. I'm like, holy cow. Uh, you know, being picked on uh, afterwards by my own extended family and seeing the resilience it built up there. Uh, growing up in poverty and embarrassment uh, really reinforced being able to respect people who have less and who are challenged. Um, being in Iraq, you know, having my own daughter be born while I was deployed. Um, there were a couple of firefights in Iraq where I almost ran into gunfire. And at the last moment, her doc turn around to see who called me. There's nobody behind me. But then I hear behind, well, where I would have been bullets kicking up and it's like, wait a second. Did nobody call me? And there are bullets there. I'll just stay right here. That's cool. <laughs> right. We don't need to run around and be a hero. <laughs> and, uh, and that happened twice. And so it's just like seeing all these different things come into place and being more sensitive to that and just seeing how God does have a hand in our lives. It's just been amazing to me. Um, it's been a wild ride. And, uh, and just knowing I wasn't always a Christian. I was that, you know, that scientific guy. I, I apply the scientific method to a lot of things, uh, but I don't hold it up as like a religion as, as some people do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was the the short story of how I became. <laughs> well, okay, that's good. Fascinating, man. I didn't know that story. And I'm really glad that you shared it with me. Thank you. That's uh, it's amazing how um, you know, God was really with you, and I think that's what you're saying is that He was with yeah. you kind of that whole time and and leading you, even though you didn't know it yet, right? You didn't have any yeah. any idea. Um, or any framework maybe for that. That's that's really an incredible story. Okay, there's a lot more that I would love to hear, but in the interest of time, I really want to talk about your podcast because mm-hmm. we're podcasting buddies. And so I want our friends, friends, I want you to go check out Beyond the Rut. I know you'll like it. Um, Jerry, so tell us about, tell me the story about when you were starting your your show because I think that's, that's it's always kind of, it's, it's interesting, right? And then yeah. tell, tell me what you're trying to do with the show, too. All right. So the the birthing of Beyond the Rut or the birthing of my whole podcasting life with the show prior to that? Well, I was thinking of Beyond <laughs> the Rut specifically, but you okay. started one before that. Yeah, you had I one. I did, yeah. Way back. When did you start? Yeah. Oh, geez. Uh, my daughter was nine. That doesn't help me at all right now because I'm like, <laughs> wait, she's 18? Yeah. So, so nine, nine years, years Dude. No. Like podcasting was barely existent then, right? Like, so this is what I mean. Like you're an OG podcaster. You're Man, out there. I, I quit. I'm old. I'm out of here. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, maybe when she was 10. She was closer to 10. Okay. Um, actually, yeah, she was like a few months shy of turning 10. Okay. So, yeah, eight-ish years going on nine. Um, I had started a show called Family Time Q&A Podcast. The reason why I started it was 
I had it on my heart to, well, I was already involved in a men's ministry, but I had it on my heart. I was going to share my story and share my insights with other men to realize that you don't have to be perfect. You just have to strive to be like Christ and just humbly serve your family. And a lot of the shows that I was listening to as podcasts or even on the radio, uh, it, it always just felt scripted. And it didn't, and it was something I was hearing other men say in my men's groups, like, yeah, I like listening to this, this show or that show, but it just, they seem like they're perfect. And, and I need that, that show that I'll admit they've gone through stuff. And I remember even hearing like parent child interactions on some of these radio shows. And you could tell that the parent was totally leading the child on to say the exact things right. that they might have said or they were being coached. And I'm like, that doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't sound authentic. What if there's a guy dumb enough to just open the microphone up, let his kids talk, ask any question they want, and I'm at their mercy. I have no idea what the questions are, and what comes out of their mouths is what I need to answer, and whatever I say, that's it. There's no editing. There's no polishing up. There's no, hey, let me go back and record this all over again. Like, it was a promise to my family that whatever came out of my mouth in that show stayed. And, um, and it was supposed to be a father-son show. My, dad, my son was like, do I have to? I'm like, oh. Uh, but my mini-me, my daughter, she came forward and said, hey, if he doesn't want to do it, I'm in. And she does the show, which is we flip it, and I ask my kids or my wife a question, and they have to answer unprepared unscripted and that whole recording becomes the episode and i'll tell you those two years my daughter called me out on so many things wow <laughs> i know and, and but i made a promise whatever we recorded that's the episode and man she would just know it though like she would set me up and uh, call me out on like uh the rage that come out of me when we played shooter games like my son and i would play first person shooters and we realized Chances are, I probably have PTSD and should not be playing those anymore. <laughs> it's you're like, <laughs> and, yeah, and so, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it was on this show though that she called me. My my daughter called me out on that, and then my wife had the courage to say something as well. Um, so that show's been going on. Uh, along comes this guy named Brandon. I've known him since 2005, and he says, "Hey, I know you've got a show, and I like it. I listen to it, and I want to do a show as well, but I don't know how to do one." And I'm, I'm like, great. So why is Sean at the table? And he said, well, Sean writes really well. Uh, and I know if you're the audio guy, Sean could be the writing guy and the three of us together can form a show. Boom. So from there, we argue for about nine months <laughs> about what that show entails. You sort of got into a rut. We starting did. beyond the rut. Oh, my gosh. The irony, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, it got to the point. We knew a couple of things. One, we wanted to reach Christian men in the 30s and 40s. We knew that much. Uh, we knew that uh, we were able to describe our avatar to a T. Um, our avatar, Joe, That's so we called him AJ. We still do. We, I guess, me. Yeah. Uh, he's 35, two kids, great corporate job, uh, nice big two-story house two-car garage he's been married to his college sweetheart for a number of years um but so everything on the outside looking in looks great but when he gets up in the morning he dreads getting ready for work then he gets in his car and he's got to face rush hour traffic to get to his office and he's already dreading the work day like he he knows he's got meetings he's got fires to put out and all that at the end of the day he's got to get back in his car tired go through rough rush hour traffic again and now he goes into the door of a family that is expecting him to be fully engaged and the best dad and the best husband ever, but he's got nothing left. And he's got this dream, but he can't pursue it because he's so tired and there's so much to do at work. They can't go on vacations because work and, and so on. And it just feels like he's settled and gave up on dreams and gave up on his purpose in life. And he's asking himself, is this all there is? And so we knew that much about the show. <laughs> yeah, you, you really nailed it down, which is good. So if you're a podcaster, guys, that, that's that's how well you need to know your audience because it will help inform what you do and why you do it. Um, okay, so that's great. So you, I mean, you've been doing this for a while now. You recently took over as the full time because Brandon stepped yeah. down, right? So you're doing Beyond the Run on your own. What are you excited about? Where are you excited for it to go? Oh, man. Uh, well, that's the cool thing. I mean, uh, Christian Podcasters Association, uh, CPA Gold, uh, really helped me out because from March till about July or August, I was kind of in 
regroup, keep the show alive, keep it afloat kind of mode. Uh, and now I've got enough episodes recorded to get me into the next six months. Yeah, next six months without nice. recording anything new. And a guy named Eric Nevins, uh, <laughs> you may have heard of him. <laughs> He's got a show called Halfway There. Uh, he, he recommended to me, as well as the rest of the CPA Gold Group, that what I really need to do is edit and prepare all those episodes by the end of November, maybe early December, and spend the rest of the year and the early part of the year, January, February, really reflecting on what's next. And mm. so it, in a way, definitively, I don't know what's next, but I know a couple of things I have in my heart is one, uh, reaching out to about 10 people I know listen to the show and find out what they like about the show. Um, what would they like to see more of? And that'll help me really hone in on the strategy of what happens in the rest of 2022. I also know that I need to write a book. There was one I started before I moved up here to Dallas and it's been on the back burner and it's just time to dust that thing off and just write it so that we can share that as well. The beyond the rut story, uh, the five circles of our lives that really need to be looked at closely, our faith, our family, our fitness, our finances, and our outlook on future possibility. And so that book kind of goes into that. It shares different stories from all our guests for the last six years. So I need to get that out there. Just kind of bring it's It's our manifesto in a way. Yeah. And so I want to get that out there. So those are the two big things. Uh, well, three. I got 30 plus episodes to edit and get ready. Uh, <laughs> I got to wow. write a book. And I need to really strategically think through what's going to be the next year and the next three to five years. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Well, Jerry, I love what you're doing with Beyond the Rut. I'm a big fan of you. Thanks for sharing your story. Uh, friends, if you want to be on the list so that you can get that book when it comes out, right? Where do they go? Beyondtherut.com? Yeah, beyondtherut.com. Uh, subscribe to the show. Subscribe to the e-newsletter because I will share it. I don't write a lot of those. I probably write once a month. But when the time comes to start promoting that book, there you that'll go. be the first group to find out. It'll be there and. I'm sure you hear about uh, podcast episodes as well. Or just flip over in your app. You're in the podcast app now. Flip over, look up Beyond the Rut. You'll find it. and uh, Or it's linked at uh, halfwaypodcast.com as always as well. Jerry, thanks so much for sharing your story. Tell me, uh, to, is there anything you want to leave us with? Oh, man. Uh, the Dune remake 2021 <laughs> was really awesome. I, I, it has nothing to do with Halfway There or Christianity. Do, you don't uh, you don't like see all that sand and get like PTSD uh, or something like you don't go. Oh, I no. thought I would because uh, I mean you know having food with your sand is not always the greatest. But uh, yeah, that guy Denis, the, the director, really encapsulated everything <laughs> I imagined that book to be. Uh, okay. So visually, I would say visually, it, it met and exceeded expectations. And it's exactly how I picture that world. Um, now, if you haven't read the book, you got to read the book. There's so much detail that you can't pick up just by watching the movie. I had no idea what was going on, but I watched it. So there you go. All right. Well, thanks, Jerry. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you.